This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon to you. Very good to be catching up with you this Monday afternoon. Today, taking a closer look at the Federal Labor Party's net zero policy and how it would affect agriculture. Also, what a rise in the royalty rate would mean for the state's potash industry, which is really only just getting off the ground with production for one company anyway, just starting last month. That's to come between now and the news at one o'clock today. Kicking off this afternoon with a look at the price of canola. As you know, it's reached record highs this season, which is great news for the broadacre farmers that grow it. But bad news for fish and chip shop owners who rely on the oil to fry that fast food that you love so much. Skyrocketing canola oil prices are really eating into the already thin margins. And there are fears that some small fish and chip outlets will be forced out of the industry. Jessica Hayes hit the road to find out more. At this busy Donnybrook fish and chip shop, the orders are rolling in thick and fast. Two shark, three crab, six squid, one chips. As the weather warms up, this Friday night favourite is in hot demand. But the cost of cooking the iconic dish is also heating up. It's very difficult at the moment with the price increase of 70% on canola oil. It's uh, making things a little bit difficult and tough. Michael Cristoli has owned the Collins Street Fish and Chip Shop for three years. Margins have always been tight, but the rise in canola oil price has made them even tighter. We mainly use local products here and we prefer to use canola oil. We use a West Australian canola oil. 70% increase is a lot. I mean, how are you wearing that at the moment? I'm probably crazy. (laughs) I am probably crazy, but uh, yes, we are wearing it and yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah, we're just getting by. But it's not just the cost of the frying oil that's impacting Mr Cristaldi's business. The frozen chips he buys to serve his customers are also becoming more expensive because the high canola price is also affecting the cost of manufacturing chips. We use about 300,000 litres of oil here per year and that's part of the process. So without the, the frying process, so to speak, is you don't have a chip that you can actually sell to the retail market. Ben Dotty Exporters owns WA Chips, which is the state's only commercial chip manufacturer. Non-executive chairman Brian Peace says when it comes to making chips, canola oil is the cream of the crop. Our people who have studied the types of oil we should be using believe that high-grade canola oil is, uh, produces the best product at the end of the day in terms of what we send out to the market. But he says the rising price of the oil will have to be passed on. We are the intermediary in terms of uh, producing the French fry or the WA chip and uh, at the end of the day those costs are going up but transport costs are going up, fuel prices are going up, energy costs are going up. So at the end of the day, somehow, our board will have to come to terms with how they're going to recover all these costs. And unfortunately, they're probably going to be passed on to the mum and dad fish and ship shops, which means the consumers are going to end up paying more. The price jump is being driven by a tight global supply of canola due to a drought in Canada, which is usually the world's biggest producer. Market analyst Andrew Whitelaw says it's resulted in a golden opportunity for Australian canola growers. So really we've had a situation where the world has got pretty short on canola 
and, and Australia is actually going to be the, the, the biggest exporter in all likelihood this year. Uh, and, and that's because we're the second largest exporter of canola. And so really it's about what is happening overseas is driving that canola price. If, if we look at it from, from a historical point of view, a farmer would be pretty happy with $600 a tonne. If we talk about across the whole country, the majority of zones are above $900 a tonne. Uh, at the moment, they have hit in recent months over $1,000 a tonne, especially in, in the West. So when you think about that, we're talking almost double the price of what we typically have, which is fantastic. It's quite a golden time for canola in Australia because of the fact that we have these record prices and that we haven't really seen before. But at the same time, we're also having a record production of canola, which allows farmers to A, get yield, but also price, which is something that doesn't often happen. We don't often have big production and big prices. Andrew Whitelaw says the canola oil price operates within a subset of various other oils, including palm and soybean, which have also increased in price. So it's not as simple as just switching away from canola oil. We've seen like a really strong demand in the last couple of years for, for oil. We've seen definitely seen in the last year, we've seen large increases in demand for oils around the world. And there's also been a lot of supply issues around access to those oils. For instance, soybeans had issues in the last two or three years Obviously, like we said before, canola, and and it basically, you know, it all comes down to supply and demand. When there's a high demand and supply hasn't really changed all that much, we have a situation where the price starts to grow larger. So, so we've seen that obviously benefits, you know, that benefits farmers. So we we've got you know farmers in Australia receiving record canola prices at a time of record production. But there's a whole supply chain we have to think about in that the supply chain you know, our customers down the line, they also have to pay the extra costs, whether that's, you know, the actual crush plant who's buying that canola or whether it's, you know, mum and dad's fish and chip shop in Scarborough or Bunbury, where they've got to, uh, they've got to buy oil at a more inflated price. Michael Zaitis is a wholesale distributor for more than 300 fish and chip shops across WA. And he's worried about what the rising cost of the cooking oils could mean for the small family-run businesses that rely on them. I think the future is very uncertain. They are a small business, family, uh, family business, and when they have to pay so much money for oil, no much profit left. <laughs> it is worried me a lot because I don't know if they are going to be there next year or a lots of fish and chips they're not going to be there <laughs> on the future. Fish and chip shop wholesale distributor Michael Zaitis ending that report from Jessica Hayes who had to do a lot of taste testing for that story. Uh, if you want to read more, there is a story for you online right now. Just search ABC Canola Fish and Chips and you will find Jessica's story. 12 past 12 here on The Country Hour. The state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, says it's now received 12.8 million tonnes of grain. So, well, over the halfway mark of an expected total crop of 21 million tonnes. So you have been busy harvesting over the weekend by the sounds of things. Just on the harvest too, two fixed-wing water bombers, an air attack supervision aircraft and a fuel truck are now stationed at Northam and Esperance until at least the middle of this month 
on standby for harvest-related fires. They're for rapid and early response to fires, and the fixed-wing water bombers can reach speeds of 280 kilometres per hour. They have the ability to drop over 3,000 litres of water and don't take long to refuel and reload. Department of Fire and Emergency Services Commissioner Darren Clem says the aircraft are working well in conjunction with the local crews on the ground. Back in early August, uh, it became apparent of the, of the you know, really bumper season that farmers were going to have across the, across the wheat belt of Western Australia, and uh, we commenced planning then to provide a, a, a quicker and faster uh, response with aircraft to fires that may occur in the wheat belt of Western Australia during harvest. And so to do that, we've, we've, planning was undertaken in relation to where we'd base them, and we've, we've arrived at basing them in uh, you know, two, two fixed-wing water bombers here in Northam, and two fixed water bombers down in uh, down in Esperance. Uh, at the moment, they're, they're, they've commenced on the 21st of November. They'll, they'll uh, contracted through till the middle of December to the 15th, and, and we'll reassess that uh, a week or so out from the 15th. But at this stage, I'd imagine we'll be looking to extend them. But you know, we'll make that decision in the next week or so. Uh, will that depend on on how the harvest is going and how many machines are out there, perhaps? Oh, certainly, it's it's the weather conditions. It's certainly about how they're going with harvest. Um, you know, already we're hearing that uh, farmers that would normally be lo- be looking to finish, a, you know, on or before Christmas, are looking to be well into the middle of January. So, uh, so just on that basis alone, you, you'd expect that we'd be extending these out. So, there's that much work out there at the moment. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a fantastic crop, and you know, great great for the farmers. You know, really, really happy for them. It comes with some risks. Uh, and that is the you know the risk of, of fires, which are, which are there every year with harvesting operations. But uh, just the you know the, the value of what's on the ground this year, uh, and uh, the, the the additional fuel makes the fires uh, harder to control early on. And so the, these aircraft are you know really beneficial to, to for that weighted early response. Has there been an issue in the past with trying to deal with these fires? Um, yeah, look, fast-moving crop fires are, are incredibly difficult to control. It's all about getting the resource there as quickly as you can, and, and in you know in farming communities, um, you know they're very good at getting uh, large amounts of you know water-carrying vehicles and the like with people to these fires. But these aircraft, um, you know, really quick travel times across the ground uh, from here to to Quereding, northern to Quereding, 18 minutes they can be dealing with a crop fire out there to assist the crews on the ground. Um, important to understand that you know the crews on the ground are absolutely critical to the firefighting effort, and these these aircraft really supplement what's what's there. Has there been much need for them so far? Uh, they've had seven activations, as I understand. Have really you know played a really important role in a in a fire out at uh, Beverly on Saturday, uh, and they were they were called out to Quirrell this morning, and that 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 got shut down. They weren't required, so it's great that they're here. Um, you know people should you know the, the various um, fire control officers and chief bush fire control officers should be activating them. Uh, if they need them, uh, and they can always, you know, they can always land and, and, and wait to be activated again. And with those incidents, uh, the response time's been measured, and uh, I guess there's been an assessment post-incident. Uh, how's it been looking? Yeah, we haven't done that yet. We'll, we'll do that. We'll certainly, you know, do a review of the year um, of, of having them based here and, and down at Esperance and see how that went. You know, it is very much about following the harvest. So, you know, it sort of starts in the northern part up up in the midwest and moves its way down through to Esperance. So we're just trying to trying to match up with that risk and and where we've got harvesters operating. Uh, that there's also a, you know consideration around the weather and sort of late season rain and what effect that has. So, uh, you know, we're really comfortable with where we've landed at the moment. Twenty uh, you know 21st of November through to the 15th of December. Uh, but you know that in terms of extending it, you know that that'll be a decision we make in the next week or so. 
and um, looking beyond the, the harvest. Is it possible they could be based here? I mean, every year looks bad. There's been a lot of growth because of rain and so on. Mm. Uh, they're talking about maybe February or March being the danger months mm. in terms of fires. Yeah, look, we, uh, we, we make decisions on, a, on almost a daily basis about where we're going to base air, aircraft during any bushfire season and so uh, they, these are just one component part of that and we have a range of uh, fixed wing water bombers with DVCA uh, as well as our, our helicopters and then, and then a, you know, hopefully a large air tanker. So uh, you know, we, we move them around, there's over 40 uh, air bases around uh, the southern part of the state that we can use for, in particular for the fixed wing. So it's a very flexible model that we can, we can change and shape to fit the risk where it exists on any given day. Department of Fire and Emergency Services Commissioner Darren Clem with David Webber. And speaking of fires, the Cups family at Alanuka, 50 kilometres northeast of Geraldton, just want to say a big thank you to everyone who came and helped with the fire at their place yesterday. 17 past 12. I'm Bevan Eats from Manjimup, and you're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio WA. News headlines for you at half past 12 today. It's 18 past right now. And you are off to the Pilbara, where a local minerals company is worried a hike in royalties on potash production could put people off investing in this emerging industry. Callium Lakes is the first in the state to be producing the high-value fertiliser sulphate of potash. In fact, it was just last month that its Lake Beyondy project, southeast of Newman, started production. And with the rising international fertiliser prices, there is a fair bit of interest in domestic production. CEO Rudolf van Niekerk says he was expecting to pay a royalty rate of 73 cents per tonne. But now the state government is planning a 5% sales royalty on the fertiliser and he says that's the last thing the industry needs. 5% royalty rate would be for us at current SOB prices equivalent to between 40 and 50 US dollars per tonne. It's a significant impact for a, a small startup first in the industry. You know, everyone's aware that we've had some, some challenges and teething issues and just getting it up and running. So it's like getting headwind at the wrong time. And then if you compare it to what others are paying in the industry, 5% is very, very high. We would, be, we would probably be the highest royalty payer in the industry compared to other industries. But it's also why the 5% has been selected. What I said we produce is a product. It's a final product that goes into the market and is used as a final product. And if you compare that with other industries, you know, the typical rates that apply for a final product is 2.5%. 5% typically applied to a concentrate, so something that has to go into the industry and, and be processed downstream to be turned into a final product. Obviously, um, you guys are the first to produce um, SOP in Western Australia, well, in Australia. There are a number of other projects trying to get up over the next couple of years and to uh, expand this industry in WA. I mean, what could the um, rise in royalty rates mean for other projects which haven't even got up yet, do you think? 40 to 50 US dollars per tonne could be enough to make projects not get off the ground. It sort of forces the projects to be of a certain size for the economies of scale to work, and some projects might just not get there. It could actually put a damper on the industry growing as, as it could be. How disappointing would that be to you as someone who's worked hard to build the potash industry up in within our state to see, you know, the whole industry be hampered, not only your project, but, um, you know, other projects around the state? 
Oh, very disappointed, as you can imagine. Um, I mean, this is exciting. It's new. It's the first in Australia, and there's so much potential for this to grow into a really big industry. So it'll be, I think, and not just for me, for, for many people, will be a very big disappointment. What are the early discussions industry are having with the state government over this issue? Are you confident that there can sort of be a compromise worked out in the future? We're not here to pick a fight with the government. We really do hope that there's a level of fairness and sensibility coming back to us. Difficult to give any level of confidence. We haven't had any feedback that gives us the, the confidence that it's going to be 5% or, or be changed lower. We'd like to think that some fairness will prevail and um, it'll come back and, and you know, give us a bit of a support to get this new exciting industry, industry going for Australia. Kellyam Lakes CEO Rudolf Van Niekerk speaking to Courtney Fowler. And it's understood the Association of Mining and Exploration Companies is lobbying the state government just to try and achieve a royalty of about 2.5%. And a spokesperson for the Minister for Mines and Petroleum, Bill Johnston, says Kellyam Lakes' first royalty payment is not due until the 30th of April 2022, so next year. And the Minister has notified the industry that a 5% royalty rate will apply, but the government is also considering further initiatives to deal with concerns from the potash producers. 22 past 12, some news just in for you. The Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk has announced the state's borders will open to all interstate travellers as of 1am on Monday, December 13, instead of December 17. So travellers coming from interstate into Queensland can arrive by road or air and will no longer need to quarantine. But, of course, there are some restrictions that will still apply. 22 past 12 here on the country are not far away from the news headlines at half past 12 and then off to the Bureau of Meteorology to check conditions. It looks like there's a little bit of... Rain possibly around for some parts of the Southwest Land Division. All those details, though, for you during that cross to the Bureau of Meteorology shortly. First, though, one of the country's largest livestock equipment manufacturers, ProWay, is reporting a huge increase in demand this year. New shearing sheds have been particularly popular thanks to some great livestock prices and the increased competition to try and attract more shearers. Pat Ryan is ProWay's product and service manager. Shearing shed fit-outs on the books have doubled in the last 12 months for, for ProWay's, as well as a steady increase for sheep and cattle yards and other handling equipment. It's been a bumpy year. In 2020, we would have commissioned about 45 shearing sheds, and this year we've just ticked over 90. So some of those range in scale. Like we've, we've just sold, I think the, one of the more recent ones was one in uh, northern Tassie, which was a 10-stand shed. So, yeah, some big projects, you know, in the books. Once upon a time, it seemed almost unheard of for new shearing sheds to be going in, but uh, now it, it seems fairly common, and, and that is actually the case from, from what you're saying. Yeah, look, it's, um, it's one of those things, like, like any infrastructure project, you need to be able to have justification there and need to be able to budget for it in, in a year. And a year like this, when you've got, Markets as strong as they are, I think that's a decision that people may have been putting off for some time. But looking at the way things are going, I think a lot of farmers and also corporate and commercial properties as well are sort of looking at safety and efficiency sort of more with more attention. And, and yeah, they're going down that 
going down that path and making those decisions to, to invest in, in quality gear. And you've probably touched on it there, Pat, but we've been talking uh, at ABC Rural a lot recently about the difficulties in getting shearers. And is this what, what you need to do now to sweeten the deal, to be able to offer a, a state-of-the-art shed to work in as compared to a dilapidated 100, 150-year-old shed? Oh, 100%. That's definitely a driving force behind some of the sheds we're installing. A, a lot of operators I talk to personally are looking to improve safety and improve working conditions and you know efficiency as well to attract good staff and get priority service when it comes to contract labour like shearing teams. Pat Ryan, Product and Service Manager with ProWay, speaking to Angus Verley. 25 past 12 and powder made from fruit and vegetables that might otherwise go to waste could soon be smuggled into the diets of kids who just won't eat the healthy stuff. The CSIRO has been working on this technology for the last couple of years. And now Victorian vegetable grower Raquel Sade's family has set up a food manufacturing company called Nutri-V, which has commercialised the process of making a highly nutritious powder from broccoli. So essentially what we do is we take 100% Australian grown and made vegetables, um, mostly vegetables that, you know, potentially don't have a home. They're, you know, too big, too small, not quite right for for retail spec. Um, And we're trying to turn them into an upcycled vegetable ingredient. So um, predominantly vegetable powders, um, but also for products that can be included in other food products or beverage products or supplements, etc., what we're doing is really reimagining um, how we can actually consume vegetables and, and repurpose that food waste on farm. CSIRO has developed the the method, and I imagine there's some pretty um, good tech that goes into it. But is it is it dehydrated? Mm-hmm. Is it freeze dried? How do you mm-hmm. turn uh, broccoli into broccoli powder? <laughs> you'd be you'd think that it would just be very straightforward. In fact, there's a bit of a um, there's intense science that kind of goes into the background. But um, I will say that you know um, that sort of first project of taking the vegetables and turning them into powder, that's probably not where the sort of exciting or the IP sits. It's almost um, a process of, I mean, I guess you could call it a form of dehydration um, in terms of we are removing that water and keeping all of the other, you know, great nutrients in the product, which is what makes broccoli so special. Um, For example, it's super high in protein on a dry basis. There's 30% super high in dietary fibre. But what's probably more special about the way Syro have um, have worked with us is that we've worked with them on actually creating enhanced nutritional content using their technology as well as that broccoli. So I wouldn't say that the Syro technology is in the drying of the broccoli powder as such, but we've got further projects that we're working with them on, for example, projects in the micro-encapsulation space of healthy oils and also fermenting the broccoli as well and understanding what great bioactives can be available from that. So the project is a, a bit bigger than, um, than just vegetable powders, which is, which is great news for innovation um, in the food space. Well, tell me about how people might eat these broccoli products in the future. We, um, we've been doing so many um, fun experiments, even just in our own kitchens, just to sort of validate what works, what doesn't work. The simplest form is to put them in your morning smoothie. You can mix them into soups. You can put a, a sprinkle into anything that you are baking. So I know that um, us in our team will often put it into wraps, we'll stir it into dips, yogurts as well. 
Um, so it really is as creative as you want to be of how you use your food. You can probably put it in almost anything. You're working with your parent company, Fresh Select, but is this something that you're looking to expand to work with other growers or perhaps in other parts of the country? Yeah, absolutely, Lucinda. So um, one thing that we've been sure upon, upon this whole sort of journey is making sure that whatever model that we create has to be something that's scalable and it has to be expandable. You know, we're in the, the you know, the salad bowl hub of, of Australia right now in Werribee South, but the amount of, um, you know, this problem isn't just on our farm, it's, it's all over. So everything that we're doing, we're creating with that expansion frame of mind and naturally also the capacity of the equipment that we're working with is quite large. So we want to be able to, at the right stage of the program, once we've, you know, done all our, um, all of our validation, actually, you know, invite local farmers to be able to, at the first stage, I'd say, before we'd go um, interstate. But I think that, um, you know, that validation isn't that far off. We're probably, you know, quite quite close to engaging in that, that side of things quite soon. It's actually easier to transport powder than it is to transport raw produce. So for us, having a hub-style model where there's a drying facility in you know large growing hubs across Australia, uh, I think is going to be a huge benefit. Um, and considering there are so many food applications for that, then dry products to go into, um, it just seems obvious that the we would go to the food rather than the food coming to us to process. Raquel Sage, she's the Operations and Sales Manager for Nutra-V, which is based in Victoria's Werribee South region. She was speaking to Lucinda Jose about her powdered veggies. And if you like the sound of making some money from dehydrated powdered fruit and vegetables, you might be interested in this little coincidence because moments ago the CSIRO put out a media release just saying that it's going to run a food drying technology short course. It's a two-day course and it's going to take place at Raquel's, well, in the same area, Werribee in Victoria early next year and registrations for that close on February 21st. So probably the best place to get some more details is the CSIRO. Just search it online. 29 to 1 with an update from the newsroom. Here's Jonathan Beale. Thanks, Belinda. The man charged with abducting four-year-old Cleo Smith in the town of Carnarvon has again been remanded in custody after making no application for bail at his latest court appearance. 36-year-old Terence Kelly appeared briefly in the town's magistrate's court this morning by a video link from Casuarina Prison in Perth, where he was taken the day after he was charged with stealing Cleo. Mr Kelly made no application for bail and is due in court again in late January. The director of the Telethon Kids Institute says parents should not be concerned about the safety of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine as it's rolled out to younger children. Australia's medical regulator has provisionally approved the jab for children as young as five and the rollout is expected to begin early next year. John Karapetis says people should be confident the vaccine has been thoroughly tested. And the federal opposition's climate change spokesman Chris Bowen says a Labor government would seek to end what he's called the destructive politics of climate change. The ALP has outlined its revamped climate policy and set a more ambitious 2030 carbon emissions reduction target than the coalition at 43%. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock. Jonathan, thank you so much for that update. 28 to 1. A few texts through to the show. You can be part of the conversation on text 
0448922604. This from Michael who says um, regarding the canola price and the price of the canola oil that's really impacting fish and chip shop owners who have to pay so much more. It's really hard to make a dollar at the moment. And Michael wonders what the price the fish and chip shop owners are paying. Growers in WA are now getting around $250 less than the price in the rest of the world. The forward price is also high. Someone is making the difference. Simple question, who is making this difference? Is it the grain marketers, the shipping companies? Yes, there's risk, but somewhere along this chain, the difference is being made. Please ask CBH Grain, how much money do they expect to make from WA canola growers? Thank you, Michael. The text is 0448922604. And shortly, taking a look at the Federal Labor Party's net zero policy, what might it mean for you on the farm? And then off to Michelle for the results of the cattle market. First, though, checking in with the weather conditions, Caroline Crow is with you this afternoon. Caroline, is there any rain uh, due sometime this week in the Southwest Land Division that could throw a bit of a spanner in the works for the harvest that's underway? Yeah, good, uh, good afternoon. Um, yeah, we may get some um, showers and thunderstorms over the next couple of days in the Southwest Land Division. Um, so let me just start with what's happening today and we'll get to that in a moment. Um, so at the moment we've had a weak cold front which has brushed the southwest corner of the state and it's moving east and it has brought some isolated showers just to those coastal parts. Albany got just over a millimetre earlier uh, overnight tonight um, but the showers are very uh, light and um, very coastal in that area and you'll notice there is quite a bit of cloud through that area as well. It's quite overcast. As we head further north we've had some isolated showers and thunderstorms uh, through the Kimberley and we also have had some in the um, Gascoigne in the northeast uh, there and adjacent interior as well and continuing for the rest of today those showers and thunderstorms are going to continue through the Kimberley they're actually getting quite active up in the Kimberley at the moment and going to be quite gusty and will extend into the Pilbara into the adjacent interior again into the northeastern parts of the Gascoigne and that adjacent gold fields um, for today Temperatures still very hot up in the Kimberley, Pilbara and interior and they're meeting sort of severe to the extreme heatwave conditions and those temperatures will continue into tomorrow and Wednesday. They do start dropping a little bit so at the moment they've been sitting around 45 degrees through that area and they will drop a little bit sort of towards the 40 degree mark. So still very hot but just not meeting the uh, heatwave, extreme heatwave conditions after Thursday. Um, so continuing up north for the next few days. We've got the, tr the trough, um, the heat low uh, inland from the Pilbara and those showers and thunderstorms are pretty much going to continue over the next few days into the outlook period and once again pretty active through the Kimberley and into the Pilbara, into the northern interior and creep down through the whole part of the eastern Gascoigne adjacent uh, southern interior and into the gold fields and very similar looking for Thursday and Friday. So what we've got heading further south is a trough from the Pilbara. It's going to extend down the west coast and deepen quite a bit particularly on Tuesday and Wednesday and as that trough deepens we're going to start seeing the warmer temperatures uh, move south down the west coast also quite fresh and gusty winds along the um, trough as well uh, particularly through the Darling Scarp area they're going to be quite fresh and gusty so uh, quite 
quite warmer temperatures heading south, winds heading south as well. And along the trough, uh, we may see some isolated showers and thunderstorms. So into Tuesday, those showers and thunderstorms extending from the Gascoyne into parts of the central west, into northeastern parts of the central wheat belt and just creeping into the lower west there. Not looking at um, significant falls from them at this point in time on Tuesday. But as we head into Wednesday, as the trough deepens right down the west coast, those temperatures will continue to warm and reach the southwestern coastal parts um, as long, once again, really fresh and gusty winds and showers and thunderstorms potentially heading uh, extending south as well. Might see a little bit more rainfall out of it overnight on Tuesday into Wednesday. Still generally lighter falls, though, maybe get that isolated moderate fall. And then on Wednesday, most of those showers and thunderstorms will uh, clear from the western coastal parts So uh, during the afternoon, so most of it's going to be in the morning there. Uh, heading into Thursday, the trough is uh, still down the west coast, although it doesn't look like there's going to be as much thunderstorm activity on Thursday associated with the trough. It dries out a bit, um, and then the trough's going to start moving inland on Thursday. So as the trough moves inland, we're going to see those uh, fresh and gusty winds east of the trough continue, and also those warmer temperatures um, quite on the eastern side as well. So they'll start extending to the eastern part of the southwest land division, and by Friday the trough's moved uh, east of the southwest land division there, and it'll be generally be clear and we'll have those uh, southwesterly winds behind the trough pushing through and some cooler temperatures. And then Caroline, warnings today. Is there anything of note? Uh, we currently have a um, strong wind, wa- coastal wind warnings um, and that extends all the way down um, from the, oh sorry, up from the Lewin coast um, all the way up to the Gascoigne coast and they will extend also along the Albany coast and the Esperance coast tomorrow. We also have fire um, weather warnings at the moment um, through the Gascoigne, through most parts of the Pilbara, into the northern interior and also into the northern parts of the central west, the coastal west north and the inland central west north district. So there's a little bit going on. Thank you for going through that in detail, Caroline. Appreciate it. No problems. Thanks a lot. 21 to 1 here on the Country Hour. ABC Radio. Fire ban information. Yeah, the Department of Fire and Emergency Services advises a total fire ban is in place today for some government districts in the Midwest, namely Chapman Valley, Greater Geraldton, Minganew, Morawa, and Northampton. So during a total fire ban, you can't light, maintain or use a fire in the open air or carry out any activity that could start a fire. And that includes a ban on all open fires for things like cooking, camping, no hot work such as metalwork, grinding or welding, unless you have an exemption, and off-road vehicle use such as four-wheel driving or quad biking isn't allowed either unless you have uh, agricultural approval and for more information on activities that you can and can't do during a total fire ban just go to the DFES website so just do a search for DFES and total fire bans and you should be able to find those details and the following shires have issued a harvest and vehicle movement ban for today that's the shire of Victoria Plains the Shire of Wickepin and also the Shire of Williams. If you'd like more detailed information on harvest bans, including the zones and all the restrictions and the lifting of harvest bans, please just get in touch with your local government. 
As far as rainfall goes over the weekend, so this is Friday right through to 9am today. Not a heap to get through. Most of it just up in the northern and eastern forecast districts in the north, actually. Kimberley, uh, Kalumbaroo, 25. Kununurra's airport recorded 29. And the Deep Earth station at Kununurra recorded 40. That was the top. Lake Argyle Resort, 28. Lansdowne, 11. And Warman, 7. It sounded like some places just got quite an intense storm overnight. And then in the Euclid district, Euclid itself received eight mils. And then in the entire Southwest Land Division forecast districts, the most rain recorded was four mils at Metla on the southern coastal patch. That's it. Richard, thank you for that. It is 19 to 1. G'day, this is Hamish McTaggart from Vigimai Station, and this is the Country Hour on the ABC. Off to Mishé for a wrap of the cattle market just before one. Checking in on the mangoes coming out of the Gascoyne region here in WA. And towards the end of last week, the Federal Labor Party released the basic elements of its net zero policy. It's a more ambitious 2030 target than the government's with tougher requirements for the country's biggest emitters to offset their emissions through a safeguard mechanism. Claire Cannon runs cattle and sheep on a property in the New South Wales Riverina district. She's also part of a group called Regen Mutual that's helping small farmers get involved in the carbon market. And she likes the ALP's policy. You know, large parts of Australia are in private hands. So um, to bring that land to the table um, as an opportunity for carbon offsets is fantastic. But it also um, changes the way that farmers can look at their enterprise. So for myself, at the moment, I've got two streams of income. I've got the wool and the beef, and I have had carbon offsets in my covenant country previously. But now I'm looking at my main part of the farm and looking at both biodiversity and carbon sinks so that we can get a third stream uh, of income, which is exciting. So are you playing in the carbon market already? No, I, I've put a covenant on um, a third of the property. It's grassy box woodland, you know, critically endangered. There's only 5% left in southern Australia. So I got carbon offsets for that um, at the time. But no, I've had people come to me, but, you know, they offer deals. And some of this is quite expensive, um, getting carbon back in the soil, planting perennial grasses twice a year etc etc and they'll put the money in for that but then they take 80 percent of future in carbon income carbon uh, credit income uh, for the next 25 years and i don't want to be handing over 80 percent of my future income streams so this is why it's really important to have trusted people you can deal with in the carbon market and the carbon market going kind of not nutso but the price is definitely rising at the moment does that play on your thinking about this oh absolutely um because one of the things, uh, I've, I've got a number of opportunities to work with carbon. One is to um, sell carbon credits. The other one is to work out our carbon footprint and sell carbon neutral wool or sell carbon neutral beef. So um, there's real markets opening up in various ways. So um, we sell our wool through ZQ Merino, ZQ Merino in New Zealand. And they sell on sale to companies such as Icebreaker and North Face, who values and sustainable and hireable welfare. But in one of the two big textile buyers in the world 
the caring group, um, K-E-R-I-N-G, they're all around and carbon neutral. So this is the way of the future and, and we'll be looking at it in all sorts of products because I think so often uh, we talk about Australia's um, carbon footprint but we forget about talking about the embedded carbon that we import into this country as well. In your case, yeah. you might be better off uh, not selling your carbon credits because then, because if you did, you wouldn't be able to claim that you're carbon neutral anymore. That's right. So this is why it's, it's such a complex question. Um, at the moment, I think it's about 50 euros um, a tonne, but um, imagine what it's going to be in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. It's going to be 250 uh, euros a tonne. So it's- that's, and, that, and, and the ALP's policy might well drive that if they make it mandatory for, for the big emitters to, to buy more carbon offsets. Absolutely. It, it absolutely will. So, you know, it, it will change the way we farm because we will be much more focused on this other source of revenue, which is our soils and our biodiversity. So uh, I think uh, it could really change the face of Australian farming. Could too much of Australian farmland go to carbon credits, locking it up effectively and, and, and taking it out of food production? I know the government is well, concerned about that. Well, I, I actually think that that's a, a, a very critical question because there's 280,000 farmers in Australia and we feed 60 million people worldwide. So we can't lock Australia up as a national park because we've got a hungry world and an increasing population. But you've locked so, up a third of your property. Well, actually, yes and no. So um, that that country is grazed six months of the year under our management plan and so those we normally put cattle in there and they provide ecosystem services so it mimics the cool burning of in, indigenous stewardship and and that what that also means it retains it's a woodland and doesn't turn into forest if you look at what australia was like um, if you look at the early paintings um, um, of australia it was much more copses not dense forest because the country was cool burnt and managed so the landscape also, is changing quite dramatically, not just for carbon trading, but the land, the physical landscape. This could, could right. drive quite a significant change overall. Yeah, I mean, it could. But, I mean, it could also be fantastic because stock need shelter and uh, they perform better when uh, they're protected from wind, you know, if it's a sheep weather alert day or high temperatures. So um, they actually need shelter and, and, you know, perform better. So, so I think it will encourage good stewardship of the land. But it's also around prices. I mean, at the moment, you know, cattle prices are so extraordinary. You know, you, you'd want to be taking um, the most of, um, making the most of that at the moment. Farmer Claire Cannon speaking to David Clawton about the net zero policies and how they might affect agriculture. 13 to 1. A group of Western Australian farmers met on Friday to form a group that supports carbon sequestration, improving soil health and reducing emissions to meet international targets. And they've called it the Sustainable Livestock Alliance. One of the drivers behind the group is Stephen Birkbeck, who is a Denmark cattle farmer, hemp producer and restaurant owner. I'm not here to talk about politics at the federal level. I think both parties have got no daylight between them on climate change, quite frankly. But when the Deputy Prime Minister represents my industry in a cattle hat, 
and tells me that we're going to have to shoot cattle because uh, we can't commit to methane reduction and livestock emissions. I'm wondering if maybe he should wear a hard hat because is he really representing cattle farmers or the coal industry and seem gassed? I mean, honestly, we can do this. Tell me a bit about the pledge that you're making. What targets specifically do you believe your business and others might be able to reach? So there's two levels to this. There's a memorandum of cooperation that Stone Mill Farm, Steve Frost, Grow Safe, the, uh, the fertilising company from Tenderden, the Cannabis Botanical Distillery from Denmark and Rain Tree Farm Denmark are co-signing today with First Nation Leicester Coin uh, Manang Elder. We are not putting any binding targets within the MOC. We're seeking large companies to come and join us, government departments to come and join us. Uh, Raintree itself will actually make a binding commitment to the, uh, the Global Methane Pledge of a 30% reduction by 2030. And secondly, to the Carbon Emission Reduction Green Deal target of 55% carbon reduction by 2030. I mean, I, I run diesel tractors, I, I wrap silage in plastic, I'm just a cattle farmer. But I'm willing to, and I'm establishing a desktop order of where I am today. And then over the next 10 years, I want to open that up to public scrutiny and audit, and I want to see if I can get to that point. So are those particular carbon and methane reduction targets specific to your business, or are they a part of the sustainable livestock group that you're hoping to create here? So specifically to my business, I am pledging to those specific targets. And then for the larger group here today... I'm suggesting as in our memorandum of cooperation that we should be pledging to those targets, but to, in, the, in the first instance, we will work toward getting the measurement tools because a lot of people won't commit until they can understand how it's going to be measured. So we're trying to, I think in the next 12 months, just get more knowledge before we actually make the commitment. So what does this group offer that other growers or livestock representative groups don't? What we're doing now is we're providing a forum for people to understand what regenerative agriculture really means from pioneers such as Steve Frost. I'm learning from Steve and others. And we've seen some amazing presentations today on the biodiversity and the need to put greater plant diversity into our grazing pastures. What proportion of cattle farmers in this area do you think are spoken for in this approach? I mean, you've made the point that the Deputy Prime Minister certainly doesn't speak for all cattle farmers when he suggests that methane targets are unachievable. How significant do you think that divide really is? I'm going to talk here on a national level, not at a local Denmark level here, Angus. Uh, what we're talking about is economic reality. We're not talking about environmental stuff. And so when Barnaby Joyce suggests we'll have to shoot our cattle because uh, we'll sign a methane pledge, I challenge that absolutely challenge that. We'll be shooting our cattle if we don't sign a methane pledge. I mean, the EEC, the USA, are some of the most tariff-driven protectionist agricultural industries in the world. I mean, 20 years ago, I struggled in those markets, and through magnificent diplomacy of trade and missionaries such as Tim Fisher, over decades, we've been able to break these barriers. And in one terrible swoop at Glasgow, it seems to me that we've lost decades of ground here. I mean, we've lost our China relationship, and we're about to lose our USA and Europe relationship. Check out the, what the, uh, the chairman of climate change from the UK said about the current UK free trade deal. I mean, we simply have to respond if we want to remain relevant. Otherwise, we'll be shooting cattle because no one will be buying them in the export market. If you disagree with the government on the question of those targets not being achievable for cattle producers in Australia, then how many cattle producers are they realistic for? Do you suppose that someone who's not necessarily in a high rainfall zone might be able to meet those same targets that you think you can meet? 
I think it's a very valid point. I, I mean, there's certain areas in our country where you're simply not going to be able to get methane reduction. So we might have to do a bit of hard lifting in the south of, uh, of Australia. What we've got to understand, there's trillions of dollars available from banks around the world, whereas they're stopping financing the coal industry. We can access huge amounts of money. Then just look at the feedlot industry. I mean, ideally, I'd like to see the more grass-fed animals, but realistically, that's not going to happen. You've got to be pragmatic in business. But if we can get industrial hemp, biochar and seaweed financed and scaled at a national level, we may not get to a 30% reduction. We might get to a 20% reduction. But we're talking about a national commitment across all industry. And I'm here to tell you right now as a cattle farmer, I'm ready to sign up and I do not want to be the sacrificial lamb to the coal industry for two or three seats. Stephen Birkbeck, he's a cattle farmer, hemp producer and restaurant owner in Denmark here in WA. Catching up with Angus McIntosh. This through on the text from Doug. Farmers and pastoralists should be very carefully consider trading their biological assets for a short-term cash injection. Every trade potentially creates long-term rigidities and loss of flexibility for agricultural businesses. Thank you for that, Doug. The text number 0448 922 604 to 1. And some good news for mango lovers. It looks like there's going to be plenty of WA mangoes on the shelves this summer. While the season has wrapped up in Kununurra, growers in Carnarvon are just weeks away from picking in the Gascoigne region. And according to the Australian Mango Industry Association's Brett Kelly, it's looking like a promising season ahead. Yeah, at this stage, it's looking around that 100,000 mark. That's about 30,000 uh, up on last year. So that's really good, which is what we want for our farmer growers, as you know, because a lot of hard work goes into producing mangoes. And, and again, they're a magnificent uh, uh, fruit to have. But uh, yeah, the, the more we can develop and sell to meet the demand, the better. And so what will that mean for prices? I mean, how much can consumers in WA expect to pay for mangoes coming out of Carnarvon, do you think? Look, I think the prices will be similar to last year. Obviously, from our perspective, we'd like to see the price be as high as it possibly can so that you know there's more return for our farmer growers to reinvest in their farms and, and for infrastructure and so forth. I know in a few parts of Australia, we're still a few months away from finishing harvest, but in general, how was the season this year? So far, look, it's been good. To give you a comparison, last year, we did about 7.2 million trays overall. That was actually down on the previous year. This year is looking to be up around about the 8 million mark. So that is, is good. It's an increase, not a huge increase, but obviously up on last year. Australian Mango Industry Association CEO Brett Kelly, he was speaking with Georgia Hargreaves ahead of their Producers Forum in Carnarvon this week. Meanwhile, mango picking has wrapped up further north in Kununurra, which finished the season on 176,000 trays, a huge improvement on last year's record low volumes coming out of that region. Five to one here on the Country Hour. And you're off to Mushay very shortly. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. COVID vaccines approved for 5 to 11-year-olds. If you're a parent and you've got lots of questions, we've got one of the country's top infectious diseases specialists to take you through what we know so far. We have the latest on the spread of the Omicron variant 
and the Pope condemns the treatment of migrants in Europe. Those stories and more coming up this lunchtime from right across the country and around the globe on The World Today. Four minutes to one. 2,065 head of cattle sold at Mushay this morning. So numbers down 325 on last week. Tracy Kilner has been keeping an eye on the sale for you today. Tracy, can you run through the details? An improved quality market, local young cattle were keenly sought and gained 20 cents a kilo, with the other main mover being heavy prime bulls to processors that gained 15 cents. The general ten- trend was firm throughout. In the pastoral section of the sale, weaner and yearling steers sold at 3.48 to 4.70 cents to remain firm. The weaner yearling heifers sold from 3.48 to 5.30 cents, again firm. Local weaner steers from 5.28 to 6.74 cents firm with the heifers from 4.74 to 6.34 cents up 25 cents a kilo. Local yearling steers gained 20 cents with sales from 3.60 to 5.38. The heifers were firm and sold from 3.90 to 4.98 cents. Manufacturing steer section, local grown steers sold from 3.48 to 4.22 cents and local grown heifers at 3.48 to 4.22 cents. The penning of cows was firm to slightly easier. Best prime cows sold from 280 to 344 cents. Score two medium weights to manufacturers sold from mainly 260 to 280 cents, down 10 cents a kilo. The light medium weights to feeders up 20 cents and sold from 296 to 348 cents a kilo. Bulls, including the pastorals, Light to live export also firm at 306 to 552 cents, depending on quality. Prime heavy for to processors from 312 to 340 cents, up 15 cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for going through those details. I'm back at Mushay tomorrow for the results of the sheep market. And this email just through from the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, with an update on the harvest so far. Uh, really busy at the moment. There is so much grain coming into the system and it now sits at officially 12,689,000 tonnes of grain has been delivered at this point. So it has been busy and a few records have also been broken. Uh, this is from Mick Daw, who's the Chief Operations Officer with CBH. She's saying in the last week we've received over 500,000 tonnes per day for six days, so bringing those totals to almost 13 million tonnes. Now, on Wednesday, so the 1st of December, there was a new single-day receival record of 586,000 tonnes, breaking the previous record of 569,000 tonnes, which was only set two days prior to that. So it is flooding in. And uh, the pressure is on, but Mick Dawes saying that everyone's working really hard and managing to keep on top of things at this point anyway. So, yes, just about 13 million tonnes already delivered and could be heading to 21 million if uh, predictions are correct. Now, this just threw on the fire bombers. Here we go again. Only half measures for aircraft loads. 3,000 litres is only three farmer fire units on the ground or less, and the boffins in Perth need to get real. 
An aircraft should be able to dump at least 30,000 litres on a fire. Then the ground crews can get it and control it. Thank you for that, Paul. Time for the news. It's now one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.